Please be seated. And we're privileged once again to turn to God's holy word. And as our Old Testament reading, I encourage you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. <clears throat> The value of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. But before we read God's holy word, let's ask for the Holy Spirit's illumination. Let's pray together. Dear God, our Father, we come before you. We are thankful for your promises of the Comforter to come. And we ask that he will bless us with an illumination of our minds and hearts that we would behold wondrous things out of your law. That you will take all the dullness and all the cares and distractions of this life away from us in this hour and help us to delve deeply into your wonderful word that our faith may increase and your glory might be seen in our lives. For Jesus' sake, amen. Proverbs 2, starting at verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity, and every good path. When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked, whose ways are crooked and who are devious in their paths, to deliver you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house leads down to death and her paths to the dead, None who go to her return, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you may walk in the way of goodness and keep to the paths of righteousness. For the upright will dwell in the land, and the blameless will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the earth, and the unfaithful will be uprooted from it. And now let's turn to our text this evening, Colossians chapter 4. We'll read verses 2 to 6 of Colossians chapter 4 this evening. And the sermon will be on verses 5 and 6. Colossians 4, starting at verse 2. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. 
Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. And this sermon is entitled, Life as a Witness for Christ. Well, throughout the history of the church, there have been many people whose lives reflected their love for their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. People whose lives are a witness to the glory of Jesus Christ in His mercy and in His grace in salvation. And one such person was Puritan pastor and one of the drafters and founders of the Westminster Standards, William Gouge. And this is how Joel Beakey and Randall Peterson describe him. Gouge was a sweet comforter of dejected souls and distressed consciences. According to his biographer, he became a spiritual mentor to many ministers in London, helping many keep peace in their congregations. His confessions of sin were accompanied with much brokenness of heart, self-abhorrency, and justification of God. In prayer, he was pertinent, judicious, spiritual, seasonable, accompanied with faith and, faith and fervor, like a true son of Jacob, wrestling with tears and supplications. A contemporary, one who lived at the time of Gouge, wrote of him, he studied much to magnify Christ and to debase himself. And Gouge said this of himself, when I look upon myself, I see nothing but emptiness and weakness. But when I look upon Christ, I see nothing but fullness and sufficiency. Gouge was a witness of Jesus Christ through his deeds and through his words. And this is what the Apostle Paul is writing about in our text, Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. Christians are to be a witness, a reflection of Jesus Christ in their lives in order that Christ may be glorified in them. And here in our text, Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6, we read of life, our whole lives, as being a witness for Christ. Christians are to be intentional about adorning the gospel of Christ in their lives. We see Christmas trees at this time of year, don't we? Adorned with many things. Well, so our lives ought to be adorned with holiness and as a witness for the glory of Jesus Christ shining forth. Well, we first see life as a witness for Christ in our text in living with wisdom. The Apostle Paul writes in verse 5, Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Paul instructs Christians to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Well, what does he mean by the phrase, walk in wisdom? Well, the word walk here is a metaphoric way of describing how we ought to live. Our lives are to be lived in wisdom as Christians. And Paul refers to living the Christian life in a number of places in the letter to the Colossians. But perhaps the most succinct summary can be found in chapter 2, verses 6 to 7, where Paul writes, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, 
abounding in it with thanksgiving. And so we see here that walking in wisdom is synonymous with living in Christ, living in union with Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is speaking about here. Union with Christ and the outworking of that reality in our lives. In these verses, it is described as being established in faith in Christ, rooted and built up, just like a plant is strongly rooted into the ground and then it's able to grow up strong and sturdy. So our lives ought to be the same. We ought to learn about Christ and be thankful to Christ. And that is wise living. Walking in wisdom is entirely with, connected with Jesus Christ because it is through Him that we have been saved from our sins by His death on the cross for us and in our place. In Christ, then, we have been adopted as children of God and we are being made holy and obedient people by the Holy Spirit. And so we see justification, adoption, and sanctification all wrapped up in these verses. And we have desires as a result new desires, new hopes, new goals which correspond more and more to how God wants us to live as His redeemed people. In Christ, we have new life, no longer in the dead works of sin, and therefore we are to live holy lives in obedience to Him and in being guided by His Word. Now, it's important to remember that we derive our strength to obey the commandments of Christ from Christ Himself. And the source of such strength is His Holy Word, the Bible, and through the Holy Spirit, applying it to our lives, applying God's Word to our hearts and our minds. And this is such a great source of encouragement, because walking in wisdom, as Paul instructs us here, is not a work that we are even able to do in our own strength. In fact, our confession of sin Sunday after Sunday is an acknowledgement that we need the Lord's help in doing this. Rather, it is the work of the Lord in us and through us. Now, dear brothers and sisters, when you reflect back on your lives, whether you were a Christian uh, many years ago or seeing how the Lord has worked in you over the years since your conversion, can you see the Lord's goodness in you? Can you see that the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you, changing your desires over time? Do you see Him making you more, more and more like Christ? Are you conforming more and more to God's Word as your guide for life, living in the light of the wisdom found therein? Our God places us in union with Christ, and it is in union with Christ that is the basis for wise Christian living. And what again is union with Christ? Well, we're united to Christ in His death. When Jesus died, we died with Him, our sins placed on His shoulders. When He resurrected, we are resurrected to new life as Christians with a new future, a new hope. Glory awaiting. Always practical and clear, the Apostle Paul leaves no one wondering how this walking in wisdom looks like in our lives. Saying in chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, and I might add children, these verses, chapter 3, verses 12 to 14 of Colossians, are wonderful verses to memorize. 
They will always be in your minds as how you ought to relate to others. Believers are to have compassionate hearts. They put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Christians are to bear with one another, forgive one another, to love one another. If these characteristics were not only to describe us, but also our church and our churches in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, what a witness to the world we would be. And that is Paul's intent, that we would be a witness to the world, that we walk in wisdom toward outsiders, that we are a Christian witness toward those who were outside the faith. Note that it is only positive not only positive obedience that the apostle is speaking about here. Wisdom not only involves positively obeying and actively obeying God's commandments and keeping His good law, it also involves avoiding the sinful attractions and the pleasures of this world. Matthew Henry says of our relationship to people in the world around us, be careful to get hurt by, not to get hurt by them and do no hurt to them or increase their prejudice against religion. Wisdom involves avoiding that which will both mar God's glory before the world and avoiding that which will lead us to sin. A number of years ago, as a police officer in Canada, in the Wadler Regional Police, there was a scandal that met the news. And in it, a number of police officers went to a cottage in Ontario and uh, smoked drugs, marijuana together. And this uh, became known, and, and one of the worst parts of it were a Christian officer was among them. And so this Christian officer was charged with a criminal offense, and he was a, a confessing Christian. People in the police service and in the community knew that he was a believer. And so, along with police officers in general uh, committing such an offense, that one of them was a professing believer did damage to the witness of Christ in that community. Walking in wisdom involves both living lives which please the Lord in active obedience to Him and being guided by His Word, as well as fleeing from sin and anything which displeases the Lord. It does not take but a small sin, dear friends, small, quote-unquote, to mar the name of Christ to those who know our neighbors are watching when they see you bundle your children up to bring them to church. They're watching you. And when you sin against the Lord, it's an attack on Christ. Be careful, dear ones. Well, the Apostle Paul adds the purpose for our walking in wisdom. It is to be directed toward those who are outside. Those who are outside refers to those who are outside the church of Jesus Christ, those who he has saved by his precious blood and have confessed faith in him. Those who are outside are those who do not have faith in Christ and who are not living a life of repentance for their sins. They are outside of union with Christ. 
They are outside of the covenant of grace. They are outside with respect to the promises of salvation and are therefore in grave trouble. Those who are outside are in a state of eternal insecurity. They are in a state of having the wrath of God ready to be poured out upon them at any moment. Dear ones, do all you can to avoid such a state. If you are here tonight at Grace Orthodox Presbyterian Church and you find yourself not believing in Jesus Christ and not repenting of your sins, then hear the Lord calling you even now. Repent and believe in Jesus, casting any notion of self-worth out the window. Paul writes in Romans 10 verse 9, a guide for you. He says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's glorious mercy. Come to him then in your sin and unworthiness. Repent and believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Confess him as your Savior and Lord and you will be saved. In Luke 12, verses 16 to 20, we read a parable that our Lord Jesus taught in his earthly ministry. We read there, Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Today, many do not consider that their days on this earth are numbered. They do not consider that one day the Lord will summon them to himself, into his very presence, to answer how they spent their life on earth, lives which God has given to be lived for his glory and obedience to his name. Perhaps you have had a time in your life where you dreaded the next bill coming because you were experiencing financial difficulty. On these occasions, you could perhaps ignore the phone calls concerning the payment owed or perhaps throw out the letter declaring your owed money. And you could ignore it for a time. But in this parable in Luke 12, the Lord Jesus describes a summons which cannot be ignored a summons that no one has any power to avoid or to delay. It is the summons of God for every man, woman, and child to appear before the bar of justice, God himself being the judge. All, all, you and I, we all will stand and everyone else will stand before him to answer for the life God has given on earth. In Romans 3, verse 23, we read of this hard reality. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Just one sin committed in this life warrants eternal condemnation. But people have not committed only one sin, have they? 
People's lives are filled with sin. Outside of salvation in Jesus Christ, there is no hope for a future of eternal life or glory because all people deserve to be punished by a good and holy God for their wicked sins against Him. We see that then there is a great urgency, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, a great need for the gospel to go forth to those who are outside. And may our lives as Christians, our speaking the truth of the gospel, lead people to Christ and to salvation in His name. And may our holy lives adorn our profession and our words. And it's this urgency that Paul recognized. And that's why he says that Christians must redeem the time in the end of verse 5. Our lives are short, and eternity is coming for everybody, including you and me. If we have any age under your belt, you'll look back and say, why, the, the years flew by, didn't they? They are going by quickly. My son sitting here is almost as tall as I am now, perhaps taller in the minds of some. Time is going quickly. I remember holding him in my arms as a baby. Our lives are short. And we need to take every opportunity we have to display Christ in our living so that when the gospel goes forth from us, it is adorned by our godly lives. Now, Paul's use of the phrase redeeming the time literally means to buy up time or to make the best use of time. And when taken together, we see that it is the Christian's duty to be a witness for Christ in their lives and their words at all times, at every time in our life. In verses 2 to 4 this morning, the Apostle Paul asked the Colossian believers to pray for him so that the door might be open for the word to go forth and that he might make the gospel clear. Well, here in our text this evening, we see that the same responsibility lies on every believer to have their life be a witness for Christ as well. And there is an urgency to this that we have seen. Our lives are short and be cut off at any moment. We must redeem the time. Dear beloved, redeem the time that God has given to you. And we live in a period in history, at least here in the West, where much time is wasted. Facebook, Instagram, internet searching, computer games, and other forms of leisure, leisure which dominates our society, devour our time, often with nothing useful accomplished. Oh, we must redeem the time. There is an urgency to this because of the precious souls around us that do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Let us redeem the time at our workplaces. Let us be hardworking, trustworthy, have a good attitude, and have integrity so that when people ask about why we are as we are and why we do as we do, we can then tell them of the Lord Jesus Christ and His goodness to us. Let us redeem the time at school and at home where we can be a blessing to our families, our brothers and sisters, our parents, our children, so that we can equip and encourage one another for service in Christ's kingdom and to increase one another's faith by bringing each other to Christ. And let us redeem the time at church where we can worship the Lord with our whole heart, delighting in coming before the presence of our God together as His people. 
be united together in truth of God's Word and love for one another and invite our neighbors, co-workers, and friends to come worship the Lord with us as well. Well, Paul's exhortation to the Colossian believers was that they walk in wisdom before the Lord or before the world, rather, in their, in their lives, be faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ in all they do. Well, next, we see the need for speaking with grace. Along with living the Christian life in wisdom as a means by which our lives witness for Christ, Paul moves on to exhort the Colossian believers with respect to their words. Now, one of the chief ways in which we have as believers, can be witnesses to the world of Jesus Christ is through our words. It is our words that Paul addresses as the final exhortation to the Colossian church in verse 6, where we read, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you want to answer each one. And first, we then we look at speaking with grace. Christians have been saved by the sheer amazing grace of God through Jesus Christ. And therefore, the communication which flows out of Christians ought to reflect such grace. Commentator Herbert Carson offers these helpful remarks, writing that the Christian speaks as one who has experienced and indeed constantly experiences the grace of God. This should influence the content of his words as he seeks to avoid what would be unworthy of the God who has saved him and to impart continually that which will edify the hearer. We remember that Paul is exhorting the Colossian believers to be a witness of Christ in their lives and words. And words form a huge part of such a witness. The gospel message of Christ must come from the mouths of all believers. I remember a story from a URC pastor in New York, and one of his neighbors said, oh, I think my neighbor is interested in Christianity. Can you come over and talk to him? Well, the minister said, no, you talk to him. He's your neighbor. And so it isn't just the minister, of course, that needs to talk about the gospel and bring the gospel to to our neighbors, all of us must speak and tell others of the good news of Jesus Christ. But this speaking with grace is not limited to times when we are telling someone about the hope of Christ that, that is within us. This grace-filled speaking must be ever-present when we talk to people in any situation, be they our family members, fellow believers, or unbelievers, we interact with in the world. And this means that coarse language, sinful sarcasm, rude joking, gossip, harsh criticism, unloving language, and all sorts of other sinful categories of speech must not ever come from our mouths. Paul writes in Ephesians 4 verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. We must always speak with grace so that others may see the grace of God in our lives, so that the gospel may be adorned with our godly speaking. 
And notice this is not merely a moralistic message. It's a message about Christ in giving Him honor, salvation, and witnessing of Christ to others. Now, having heard this exhortation, there is not a single person in this room, barring some perhaps who are too young to speak, who has lived any reasonable length of time, who has not sinned with their words. So often are we not thoughtless, crude, selfish, and ungodly with our words, even to the people who we love the most. Let us repent, dear brothers and sisters, of our sins of speech and turn once again to the Lord with full purpose of and with endeavor after new obedience. Be encouraged, dear friends, dear Christians, when we read the assurance of pardon, when we confess our sins in worship together, we may be encouraged that the Lord will work in us to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ, that our words always may be seasoned with salt. Well, our text goes further, adding the idea of speaking with grace, saying that our speech must also be seasoned with salt. Now, isn't that an interesting metaphor to compare our speaking with? I remember in the Reformed worship class that I took under Dr. Joseph Piper at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, how he described how we ought to take time to taste the bread and wine when celebrating the Lord's Supper. Dr. Piper said that we should hold the bread in our hands and feel the texture in our mouths as we are reminded of the broken body of Christ. And in the same way with the wine, we should focus on the sweetness in our mouth and the burning sensation as we swallow it back, being reminded of both the sweetness and the bitterness of the shed blood of Christ for us. In the Lord's Supper, we have physical taste, used as a means of grace to remind us of the passion of Christ for His people. And here in verse 6, Paul also then compares physical experience of taste to describe how our speech should remind us of Christ's command to be salt and light on the earth. Our speech must be with grace, seasoned with salt. Now we know this, that salt adds flavor and it preserves. It makes food taste better. Often food without salt is flavorless, but adding salt causes the flavors to come out, increasing our delight in the meal. And in the same way, the speech and language of Christians must be attractive to the spiritual sense of those in the world. As our walk must attract people to Christ, so must our talk. If we present the gospel to our neighbors and others who cross our paths, is it not essential that all our speech be glorifying to God as well? How can we present Christ if our words are often said in anger? cursing and self-serving in their ways. Well, in Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16, the Lord Jesus speaks of this very thing. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. 
we may be a source of glory to God, dear brothers and sisters. May our words be a source of glory to our wonderful God. And may others see Jesus Christ reflected in us so that our lives may be a witness for Christ as well. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, guard your words. We sin, and there are times when our guard is let down. Anxiety and frustration take over. Our words come out of our mouths that cause hurt and shame. Once spoken, words cannot be retracted. Often the damage cannot be undone. We must earnestly pray that we have the strength to avoid speaking such harmful words and that Christ is reflected in his beauty and glory in what we speak as well as what we do so that we are a witness of his glory and his goodness to those who are outside and a blessing to our fellow believers. And so we see that we are to walk in wisdom and speak with grace as a witness for Christ. Well, finally, we see answering with knowledge. Paul ends his exhortation with respect to our speech with a motive and a reason. And we read verse 6, again, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you want to answer each one. And taken with verse 5, we see that we are to walk in wisdom and redeem the time. Our speech is to be with grace and seasoned with salt. And therefore, because of those things, we will be able to know how to answer each one. What Paul is saying here is that Christians who are living consistent, godly lives will have people asking them about their faith and about their hope. In fact, that our text reads that you may know how to answer each one implies that questions will be asked of us. We will need to give an answer to those who inquire, why, dear Christian, do you have hope? Why do you work with such joy in your life? Why are you content? Why with that trial are you not so angry? I would be furious. Why? we may give an answer. We read the same idea in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Christians who live consistent godly lives and whose speech reflects the grace of God in them stand out and stand apart in the world. And I think that as time goes on, that'll be the case more and more. Sometimes our country and our world seems to be like a ship without a rudder, going on its own way. But we have a rudder in Christ, an anchor that stabilizes us and is a guide for life. Well, in Philippians 2 verse 15, we read that we should be blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. What encouragement, dear friends. We must be lights reflecting God's truth in a spiritually dark, broken, and hopeless world. And this call to be able to defend the gospel and to answer questions concerning it is as timely for our day 
as it has ever been. In an address at the 2022 Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary Conference, Dr. Carl Truman compared the current situation in which Christians find themselves today in 2022 or 2023 as this case now, with Christians in the second century, the age of the Christian apologists. He explains that this comparison can be made because the second century was a time when society was ignorant of Christianity, and many made slanderous accusations against the church. Christianity was viewed as an evil presence in society at the time. And we remember some of the accusations. Cannibalism. They ate the body and blood of Jesus. Preposterous. But that's the accusation. We call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, they must be incestuous. These are actually accusations that Christians were faced with in the second century. Absurd. But of course, our society is delving into ignorance over Christianity again. Today, Western society is not only indifferent to Christianity. There may have been a time when it was indifferent. Christianity rather now is becoming viewed as an evil thing, even here in America. An example of this is how Christianity is becoming viewed in relation to the LGBTQ plus community in the minds of some, perhaps many. Truman points out that there was once a time when sexuality was categorized as what people do, but now it is defined as who people are. And that's a huge difference. So when Scripture, for example, and by extension, us, the church, declare any sexual activity outside the parameters of biblical marriage to be sin... It is no longer seen as a criticism only against a moral act. Rather, it is becoming viewed as an attack against the essence of who people are. And this, is, of course, is a satanic lie, as sinful sexual behavior never defines who we are, but is rather something we do, and it is something that is very sinful and morally evil. And this changing view in our society with respect to sexual behavior is only one example of how Christianity is becoming viewed as an evil thing in some quarters of our society. But it isn't just this area where we find tension between Christianity and our society. As a general reality, so few people know the Lord Jesus as their Savior here in the United States. So many American cities have churches whose spires form beautiful skylines, but so few people fill them. And in so many churches, they have stopped preaching the gospel message that Jesus saves sinners like you and me through his death on the cross and that we must be a holy people. Rather, many preach moralistic messages that don't call people to repent of their sins but rather preach social justice messages or tell us how to be good people in society. This is making the church irrelevant because these same moralistic values are found in the Lions Club and other social agencies. The plight of our country is great, like the plight of the Roman Empire was in the Apostles' Day and in the first century, the days of the early church. 
We need the gospel of Jesus Christ to be preached off the pulpits with power and with clarity. And we need Christians to live lives of wisdom and grace, to be witnesses of the changing power of Christ in their lives. We do have hope. We don't rest on a myth. We don't rest on some vague philosophy. We rest on the historic reality of Jesus Christ who came in this world, who died, and who rose again, and who will return. This is knowledge. It's historical fact. And because of this, Paul's exhortation to know how to answer each one is as timely now as it has ever been. You see, people don't have a bedrock to stand on if they don't have Christ. Dear brothers and sisters, If we, being true followers of Christ, do what Paul instructs the church here in Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6, and 2 to 4 also in prayer, by walking in wisdom and ensuring our speeches with grace and seasoned with salt, we will be asked about our faith in Christ. We live in a world filled with lost and confused people who are living in spiritual darkness and who do not have hope. Let us, in the wisdom and strength of Christ our Lord, be ready to answer the questions of the world concerning the King we serve, Jesus Christ and the good things He has done for us in our lives. Sometimes we wonder, what am I going to tell people? Tell them how much you love Jesus and how He has saved you from your sins. It doesn't have to be the perfect thing. Pour your heart out to people. I love Christ. He has saved me. And I will see him one day. These eyes will look upon him. These hands will touch him. Because I'm a Christian. And he has saved me. And the encouraging thing is, is that if we do these things, the gospel's going forth through you. Our old pastor had a Down syndrome child. She died at about late 40s. Well, on a bus one time, she rebuked a man for swearing, and then she told him about Jesus Christ, and he became a Christian. He was actually converted. Dear friends, the Lord uses even feeble means like us to bring the power of the gospel forward. As Christians, we all have a duty to represent Christ. What joy, what an honor, It is. The context of Paul's exhortation is the preeminence and sufficiency of Christ. That's really what the book of Colossians is about. They say the book of Ephesians is about the church of Christ, and Colossians is about the Christ of the church. Let us then walk worthy of Him in our deeds and words, and let us say with William Gouge, when I look upon myself, I see nothing but emptiness and weakness. But when I look upon Christ, I see nothing but fullness and sufficiency. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear God, our Father, we're so thankful and encouraged by these exhortations because, Lord, you don't give us commands and then tell us to go in our own strength. No, you give us the strength to obey as well. We are encouraged, Lord, tonight. In the the call to pray, in the call to live godly lives and have our words be seasoned with salt and filled with the grace of God in Christ.
Dear God, use us for your glory. May we live lives of holiness before your face. Help us to be encouraged in the salvation that we have in Jesus. Thank you for our time of worship this evening. Bless us this week, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.